Well, hello and welcome to a quick trip around the universe. We'll search out some science secrets. This is the Fun Kids Science Weekly. My name's Dan. This is the only podcast in the universe that explores the whole of the universe and uncovers all the gems that are lurking nearby. This week, we'll talk about what birds do when they sense a storm. Do they fly through it? Do they fly around it? Sometimes they know that it's coming before we do. They've got nowhere to hide. So what happens to these birds? What do they do? How do they respond when these um, extreme conditions come around? That is with the expert Emily Shepherd. You can hear from more of her in a little bit. Also, we're back with Amy's Aviation. She is our airplane genius. This week, she'll take us to space with planes. Planes that can fly in the air and through gravity. How does that work? There's an exciting new type of spacecraft to take space tourists up and up and away on suborbital flights to heights around 100 kilometres above sea level. And I've got your questions to answer as always. This week, they are on fruit and veg, what makes them, and how does your brain tell you what to do? We'll find that out in a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. Let's start off with this week's Science in the News. The world is getting darker which is a strange effect of climate change. Experts have measured the planet's shine by looking at the light reflected from Earth onto the moon. So this is sunlight that travels from the sun, takes like eight minutes, it hits our planet and then it goes to the moon and it lights up some of that and they can find out how much we're shining and they've discovered that it's actually getting less. Studies suggest that the amount of low cloud over oceans is reducing because the seas are getting warmer and these clouds act like a mirror at reflecting the sun's light and if there's not many of them around it doesn't do as good a job before now it's hard to see what impact that has for us here on earth but it's a clear sign that things are changing around the world and through space also researchers from the university of tokyo have discovered that rats have a natural ability to dance to a bee i love this the way they did it's incredible too using wireless miniature accelerometers which measure head movements the scientists discovered that rats understand and move to music in very similar ways to us it's strange isn't it we used to think that our ability to dance to music was like unique to humans but it turns out animals enjoy a dance too which maybe you had already figured out looking at your cat or your dog when you're playing music how do they act i wonder also human beings used fire to cook hundreds of thousands of years before we had originally thought scientists in israel found evidence of 780,000 year old remains of a huge fish in israel that they think were actually cooked and experts say this would completely change how we thought humans would have acted at the time. I think it's amazing that we're constantly finding out things about what us humans did so long ago and how it's slightly different to what we thought they did and how that changes the future. Let's get to your questions on the show then. Every week, you send over these things about the world that you are wondering. Maybe it's further out than the world. Maybe you want to know what's going on in space. Anything science that you need solved, send it over to me as a voice note on the Fun Kids app, and then I will do the digging, and I'll find out for you, just like this. Who's first today? 
Hello, my name is Wolf and I'm 13 years old. I would like to know what kind of atoms make up fruit and veg. Wolf, thank you so much for sending that in. Brilliant question, even better name. So what type of atoms make up fruit and veg? Well, elements, molecules... And chemicals make up everything, really, everything you can see around you. That's the building blocks of life, including fruit. Now take a banana. 75% of a banana is water. That's a molecule, H2O. Then you have fibre. You've got amino acids in there, fatty acids too. Glucose, fructose and sucrose, they are sugar molecules. They give your body energy. They're all in a banana. These are types of atoms and molecules, the elements that make up everything. And they build together to make the fruit and the veg the we every single day. So thank you for that, Wolf. Who's next with the question this week? I'm Mabel and I'm eight years old and I would like to know how your brain controls your body. Mabel, thank you so much. Your brain is the driving processor of your central nervous system. They make nerves. They make the wires that go all around your body move and work and tell things what to do. It sends tiny electrical pulses, bursts of energy through them, which control everything. Through those nerves, those wires, your brain can tell you what muscles need to move and when. That's how it controls it. It's like, uh, you know in those sci-fi movies sometimes, where you see a creature or an alien that's like inhabited another person's body and is moving it around with levers. That's kind of what your brain is doing anyway. It's pulling all of these nerves firing off electrical pulses that tell you what to do when you need to move and what you need to think. It's an absolute genius system, Mabel. Thank you for the question. If you've got something science that you answered next week on the show, do send it as a voice note to me on the free Fun Kids app. So something very exciting is starting this week on the Fun Kids Science Weekly. You can now get this podcast ad-free And you'll get special bonus episodes too. In those bonus episodes, I'll answer more of your questions. We'll do one a month, really, and I will just dedicate that whole time to your questions and to solving more of those science secrets that are lurking throughout the universe. Now, you'll need a grown-up's help for this. When you subscribe to Fun Kids Podcasts Plus, you'll get this podcast without all the ads. Plus, you'll get access to over 30 other Fun Kids Podcasts too. Now, the first of those special bonus episodes full of your questions can be downloaded right now if you really love the science that we talk about and what we do get involved with fun kids podcasts plus remember when you become a subscriber you're supporting the work we do every day to make entertaining high quality and safe content for your family in our podcasts on the radio online subscribe to fun kids podcasts plus by heading to funkidslive.com or if you're listening right now on apple podcasts tap try free you'll unlock a 30-day free trial and you'll get to listen to that very first Science Weekly bonus episode that we're doing right now by becoming a subscriber to Fun Kids Podcasts Plus. Let's catch up with Curious Kate then right now. Kate loves energy. She is a genius. She wants to know all about electricity and what powers the things that we use every single day. She answers all the big questions about how things work. We've been following Kate, getting curious with her for the last few weeks. This time, we're looking at the invention that makes our world so brilliant and bright, the light bulb. Curious Kate, in association with British Gas Generation Green. 
Ow! What was that? Tom, you okay? Since my brother got back from university, he's been doing some really odd things. I'm not exactly sure what, as he never lets me see until he's finished, which is very annoying. It's got me all curious. Sounds like he might need my help, so maybe now's my chance to find out. Why is it so dark in here? Are you pretending to be a vampire again? You know it's not Halloween for ages. Ha ha ha. No, I'm not pretending to be a vampire. I was trying to replace this old light bulb with an excellent bright green bulb I bought. I wanted to give my room a great glow, but now it's all dark and I can't find it. <laughs> we might as well light a fire in the fireplace if you can't find the bulb. That would give off a great glow. <laughs> and burn the whole house down knowing my brother. Funny you say that. Years ago, if you wanted to light up your room, you would have lit a fire or some candles. It wouldn't half stink, though. Come over here and help me look for this bulb, then. Okay. So, who invented the light bulb anyway? It was me. What? Only joking. Most people think it was an American called Thomas Edison who invented the light bulb as we know it today. But there was also a British guy called Joseph Swan who had the same idea in the 1870s. Wait a minute. A modern light bulb can't be the same as they were in the 1870s. You're right. They're not exactly the same. They've changed over time to get brighter and use less energy. People loved the light bulb at first. They thought it was the best thing since uh, sliced bread. But a big issue was that bulbs burnt out really quickly and households went through over 50 bulbs a year. Wow, that's loads. I can't remember the last time Mum changed mine. Exactly. So to help, in the 1930s, the fluorescent bulb was invented. These create light by running a charge through gas rather than by heating up filament. These new bulbs used 20% less energy and lasted up to six times longer. Oh, I think I've found your bulb, but I can't tell if it's green in the dark. Is this it? No, it's not that. That's a normal CFL. A CF what? <laughs> Don't you ever pay attention to Mum? It's a compact fluorescent lamp. Although most normal people just call them energy-saving bulbs, they produce a more efficient light. Oh, and this is the sciencey bit I've learned. <clears throat> they are more efficient because they don't use glowing filaments. Instead, they contain a mixture of argon and mercury vapour. But it can't be just gas in there, right? There needs to be something to set it off. Yeah, that's the good bit. A small electrical circuit called a ballast produces a current that passes through the gas. The vapour then gets all excited and gives off an ultraviolet light that turns into visible light because of a coating on the inside of the bulb. But what about in my digital radio? Or the flashy light in my hair straighteners? They're too small to have any gas in them. But they're still a light, aren't they? Yeah, those are LEDs, light-emitting diodes. You'd find them all over the place, like in your phone, on Christmas trees, and even the colours on modern traffic lights are LEDs. They're basically a perfect piece of technology. If they're so perfect, why don't you use that kind of bulb in your lamp? Hopefully, one day in the future we will. In fact, LED bulbs might allow us to do away with traditional lamps and be in other everyday objects. What, like in my curtains or around the doorframe or something? Yeah, but that's in the future. Right now, LEDs aren't widespread because they're pretty expensive, especially for a student like myself. But you never know what the next innovation will be. It's all pretty exciting. Oh, what's this bulb? I think it's the right one. Try it in the light. Just don't fall off the chair this time. Ha ha, enough of that, you. Let's try it out. Yes, it works. 
Now, how good does my room look all green? Wow, it looks great. Curious Kate, in association with British Gas Generation Green. How curious are you? Test your curiosity at www.generationgreen.co.uk forward slash curiosity. Let's get this week's Dangerous Dan then. We are headed into the past. About ooh, 40 million years ago, we're taking a look at the Basilosaurus. The Basilosaurus's name means King Lizard. But don't let this fool you. It wasn't a lizard at all. It was actually a marine mammal. It was one of the fiercest whales that has ever lived. It weighed over 10 tons, grew up to 60 foot long, as I said, about 40 million years ago. They were also sleeker than modern whales, and they looked like big eels, huge eels. They had a fierce face that looked quite like a crocodile's, really, with a long jaw with razor-sharp teeth. And fossils of the beast have shown fish, ancient dolphins, and even sharks in their stomach when they died. So they were eating all of those incredible creatures. They were pretty much top of the food chain. They were large, carnivorous, and could take down any prey underwater. Now, its bite, experts think, was probably as strong as a T-Rex, meaning they could crash and chomp through anything under the sea. The thing is, with the Basilosaurus, they were also lonely. They didn't move in herds, they kind of went solo by themselves. And that can make it hard for a creature to find food. It's much easier to eat when you're in a big pack. So scientists think that some of these creatures would have starved even though they were so massive and mighty. But because they are such a big, brutal beast, the Basilosaurus goes straight onto our Dangerous Dan list. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. This week... We're headed into the sky to take a look at what some birds do to reduce their risk of getting hurt by storms. And we've got an expert to help us out. Emily Shepard is from Swansea University. Emily, thank you for being there. Hi, it's a pleasure. So seabirds, I know there are a lot of birds in the air. How do you define a a seabird? Is it just they fly over the ocean or is there more than that? It's quite a broad um, categorization. It's birds that spend a large part of their lifespan at sea or depend on the sea for, and yeah, for feeding, really. Now, you've been monitoring and watching how they deal with very fast winds that might be flowing towards them. Why, why did you want to look at what birds do when they're near a storm? I think it's just a fascinating question. Um, so there are areas of the world that are subject to really strong cyclones. And um, one part, one, one area is the Sea of Japan. Actually, a colleague of mine and my husband were in Japan when a really, really strong um, typhoon hit. It's called a typhoon just because of that. That's what they're called in that part of the world. And, and they just, you know, they, they, everyone had to kind of cling on to things while there's, the winds were just whipping down the streets and it caused billions of dollars worth of, um, in terms of damage. And they thought, well, you know, what happens out at sea when these seabirds, like shearwaters, which we were working with, they've got nowhere to hide. So what happens to these birds? What do they do? How do they respond when these um, extreme conditions come around? Let's just talk about those extreme conditions a little bit. I know you're more of an animal expert and and you watch their movements all around the world. Uh, But I'm aware some people listening 
might know there are so many different types of weather they're told about, be they tornadoes or hurricanes or typhoons. Uh, what is a what what is a, a, a typhoon? What makes it that and not a tornado? If you can explain quickly. Sure, I guess there are a couple of different things. So um, a tornado, I think, is, is um, where you have a very specific um, kind of. You often have like a, a water spout which which comes up from the ground, and you can see this spinning. Um, uh, field, if you, if you like, um, actually reaching right down to the ground. Um, hurricanes, cyclones, and typhoons are all really the same thing. They're really, really strong winds. Um, and when you have a weather system that's got a clear eye in the middle of it, but they're just called the, uh, different names depending on where they occur in the world. So um, they're called typhoons when they hit Japan. It's just a, a, a meteorological convention. So you've got these massive winds, a lot of storm going on, and they're they're moving in a, in a huge circle around a gap in the middle. Now, when you were tracking the birds, how did you pay attention to where they were and where they were going? Well, we were working with a colleague called Ken Yoda, who's been working with these shearwaters, street shearwaters, for over 10 years. And he's been putting miniature GPS loggers on the backs of them to find out where they go. And they're, they're remarkable because they undertake journeys of hundreds of miles, even when they're just going out to feed their chicks. So they can travel a really long way. Um, and we also know that they're specialized for flying in really windy conditions. Um, but that's still a bit different to thinking about, you know, we thought, well, are they going to be uh, show a particular response to storms or not? We weren't entirely sure. Um, and so that's what we wanted to find out. And so we looked at these GPS tracks that he's been collecting for over 10 years and found cases where birds were actually flying in the Sea of Japan when a typhoon was passing through. And that's what we um, that's what we honed in on. And what did you find out? What do birds do when they're near these massive, volatile weather systems? It depends where they are and where the storm is passing in relation to them and also to the land. So sometimes when they're far out at sea, they actually use um, part of the storm system just to help them fly around the eye. Because in the eye itself, you've got this, this area where it's actually quite wind still. But then surrounding the eye is what's called the eye wall, where you get bands of intense rain and the strongest winds in the whole of the system. So they, um, if they're out in this, right out in the middle of the Sea of Japan, we found that they'd circumnavigate um, the eye of the storm. But... What we found, which just blew us away, was that if birds were sandwiched in between mainland Japan and the, the path of the storm, they'd actually fly towards the eye and sometimes track the eye of the storm, which was a behaviour that we just never expected to see. Uh, so sometimes if they're outside of the storm, they'll fly through the storm to get to the safety of the middle. So they, if they fly towards the storm, it's because they are it's starting to experience really strong wind conditions where they are. So it's, um, we think, you know, they know that there's a storm approaching. And the, <laughs> we were scratching our heads about this for a long time. But what we think is happening is that if they stay in their normal area where they feed, um, and whilst this strong um, storm is passing through, behind the storm, you get winds which could blow them onto land. And that's what they want to avoid. Because these seabirds are so adapted to being at sea, but they're actually not very good at landing in a very controlled way. And being on land, and especially being blown around near land in, in really strong storm winds, we think that's the dangerous bit. So we think that they're flying towards the eye and tracking the eye to 
help them just basically um, control their position in relation to storm and make, and make sure they don't get um, blown, on, blown on or towards land. So they're almost weighing up the risk of, of, of both of these. And they think that uh, flying close to a storm, massive and violent it might be, is, is less of a risk to them than being blown onto land where they might not be able to find food. Is that right? Exactly. That's what we think is happening. And, and, and it might be that these storms aren't that risky for them when they're just over water um, because they can, they, can, they can carry on flying. But as long as they're, you know, water is relatively, it's cold, but it's, it's, it's a soft or, or forgiving substrate, if you like, whereas land isn't. Us humans, we, we know there's a big wind coming, uh, maybe a little while in advance because we watch the weather forecast on telly. Birds, that's their home. They've got these brilliant wings with these feathers that are so acutely sensitive to the winds around them. How brilliant are, are they, do you know, of, of predicting storms that might be heading their way within the f- next day or so? Yeah, there's actually evidence from um, another study that's, that's looked a bit at this. And um, they found that frigate birds and um, red-footed boobies, which are two species of birds that occur in the tropics, they found that they make these massive detours of hundreds of miles um, in a, uh, to, to circumnavigate storms and that they can even start leaving the colony and many hours before the storm is due to hit. So um, we think there are two cues that they're using, to, that, you know, two things which might tell them that a storm is coming. And the first is a drop in pressure, um, which is one of the things that you know, meteorologists are keyed into and that informs our weather forecasts. And the other thing is infrasound which is really low frequency sound and is generated by things like the churning of the waves. And so that, um, birds might be able to use that to tell them about um, that, that storm's coming and also where it's coming from. Amazing. Uh, it, it, it's, it blows your mind, doesn't it, that all this is going on at a completely different level of real knowledge that us humans have. They're out there doing their own things, staying safe. It's been an absolute joy to talk to you. Emily Shepherd from Swansea University, thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. Let's check in with Amy's aviation now. We've been following Amy for the last couple of months as she explores everything in the air for us. She's an absolute airplane genius. She's told us Uh, what they're made from, how they're powered, how they take off, how they stay in the air. This week, it's all about the different kinds of planes and how they work and how some of them even go into space. Take a listen. Have you ever been on an aeroplane? It's really cool, isn't it? My favourite bit is when the plane takes off and you go higher and higher through the clouds and into the blue sky above. Even if it's cloudy and grey, above the clouds it's always sunny. Can you imagine what it would be like if you didn't stop there but carried on going up and up and into space? (laughs) Nice idea, but normal planes wouldn't last long in space or even be able to get there. For starters, they'd never get fast enough to escape the Earth's gravity and their engines need air to mix with the fuel. And there's no air in space. You need a pretty special sort of plane to get that far. Any ideas what it is? Ready for takeoff. A rocket! 
Until now, that's pretty much the only way to escape the Earth's atmosphere. And you'd also need to be a special kind of person to do it. An astronaut. Permission to ground control. You have to be super clever to be an astronaut. Not to mention incredibly fit. Most astronauts are qualified pilots and have trained for years and years just to get on a waiting list to go on a mission. Others are top scientists who want to do experiments in space and they have to train hard to be fit enough for the mission. So you're probably thinking that it's pretty unlikely normal people would ever get to go. But you'd be wrong. Or you could be wrong. There's an exciting new type of spacecraft to take space tourists up and up and away on sub-orbital flights to heights around 100 kilometres above sea level. These amazing planes are called Virgin Galactic Spaceship 1 and Spaceship 2. Test flights have already started, although they haven't quite decided when the flights will take off for real. Anyone who can afford a ticket can reserve a place to be one of the first space tourists. Lots of famous people have already booked their place. Professor Stephen Hawking has reserved a seat, and so has the singer Katy Perry. Maybe she'll do a concert up there. Can you imagine what being a space tourist would be like? After two or three days of preparing with your crew, you're suited up and you're raring to go. And you're off! The spaceship climbs to 50,000 feet. It's pulled by an amazing mothership called the White Knight. There are two of these in Virgin Galactic's fleet. The ships use carbon fibre and the latest technology to travel quickly and using the least energy possible. The White Knight has a crazy design. It looks like two planes joined by their wingtips and the spaceship sits in the centre, effectively getting a piggyback into the highest reaches of the Earth's atmosphere. And it's here where the countdown to space begins. Three, two, one. Once released from the White Knight, there'll be a wave of power surging through the craft. You'll be pinned to your seat as the rocket motors howl and accelerate you and the other passengers Two and a half thousand miles an hour! Three times the speed of sound! Has to be this fast to break free into orbit! As you hurtle through the edges of the atmosphere, the large windows show the cobalt blue sky turning to mauve and indigo and finally to black. And then... silence. The rocket motor has been switched off and it is quiet. But it's not just quiet, it's really quiet. No sounds at all, and there's something else that has disappeared. And that's gravity. You're used to having your feet firmly on the floor, but here there isn't any. There's no up and no down, and you could float out of your seat, experiencing the amazing freedom. Whee! Floating and somersaulting towards the window, you could see the Earth far below, a globe covered in streamers of atmosphere, making you realise how small we are and how enormous space is. And now it's time to go. Oh, it would be brilliant to be a space tourist. You'd need to be pretty rich, though. Tickets for these flights are $200,000. Time to start saving. I guess we'll have to settle for normal aircraft for now if we want to be tourists. Time for me to fly.
Thank you so much to Amy. We'll learn about some more planes next week on the podcast. If you've got a question that you want on the show, something that you would like me to answer for you, maybe in our brand new bonus episodes too, send it as a voice note on the free Fun Kids app or at funkidslive.com. You've had so many brilliant series today. Curious Kate, Amy's Aviation. We've got tons more on Google, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your shows. It's on the free Fun Kids app and at funkidslive.com. And Fun Kids, we are a children's radio station from the UK. Listen all over the country on your DAB digital radio and at funkidslive.com.